I was planning on this just being a fun review of house-based Sarat in the Torah reading of Mitzorah. Then terrorism intervened. Everybody is talking about the attack in Tel Aviv. But they're all saying the same things they've said before. I could say the same things I've said before, but I'm not sure what it would accomplish. The only thing that is different about this time is the people who were killed and injured. But I don't yet know their names or anything about them. So I'll just leave you with this brief thought and then we'll move on. Our enemies have hated us since the time of Amalek. Like Amalek, they've all had their excuses. Like Amalek, they have nursed their hatred for generations. We are obligated to fight and we will face some losses. But just fighting is not enough. As with that first battle against Amalek, our leaders have to wield the staff of Hashem. They have to lift it high. They have to be doing Hashem's work and walking in Hashem's path. Then we can fight and we can be victorious. Then we can remove our enemy's ability or perhaps even desire to nurse their hatreds from generation to generation, to eliminate their zacher, their memory, from below the heavens. Okay, on to the fun stuff. Let's talk about Pesach cleaning. Pesach cleaning is quite different from person to person, from culture to culture. My family just started with the kids' bedrooms yesterday. That would be Thursday, the week before Pesach. We plan on finishing the kitchen on Tuesday so we can cook for Pesach. One of my siblings started cleaning at Hanukkah. Really? Now, some of it is crazy cleaning, you know, between these different people in my family, but others take it further. Some Indian Jews whitewash their entire houses. I know people here in Israel who repaint before every Pesach. And of course, Ethiopians used to break and remake their dishes every year. There's a lot of variety, and some people can take it really, really far. But when it comes to taking your cleaning, your spiritual cleaning, to the next level, this Torah reading does it. First, you empty the house. Then you take out all the affected stones and replace them while scraping all the mortar. And if that isn't enough, you disassemble the whole place and you build a new one. A new house, that is. Now, I gotta say, if I came across some deep green and red mold in my house, I might be tempted to do all of the above. But the cleaning we've described here is pretty insane. Especially since the person isn't even necessarily affected by the disease. I mean, not as the Torah describes it. It's not like it goes from the house to the person. So why are we doing this? The whole thing starts with an odd verse. Ki el kanan asher ani noten lachem when you come into the land of Canaan, which I will give to you for an inheritance, and I give the plague of leprosy in a house to the land of your inheritance, and I will give the plague of leprosy in a house of the land of your inheritance. Why is it weird? Hashem is giving the house leprosy, not placing it or sticking it or imposing it or infecting it. He is giving it like, like it's a present. And just as the land is given to the people, Tzarat is given to the houses. How can this house-destroying disease be a gift to the house? And how is this connected to the land of Achuzah, of inheritance? Well, the way I see it, you've inherited the land. You just move into a house you didn't own before. The house could have a spiritual illness in how it was built, in the intent that went into it, in the activities that were carried out within it. And even if you don't know about those activities, about that intent, it can infect you. My parents did a pretty good Pesach cleaning. It took months sometimes. The house was big and the house was very, very dirty. 
One year after I'd gone to college, they moved a bookcase to clean behind it and discovered, stuck there, a dead cat. I'm guessing they didn't know about it before. After all, knowingly avoiding the dead cat behind the bookcase just seems like a bit too much. But it couldn't have been good for them. When you think about our reactions, our Jewish reactions to death, washing our hands, separating ourselves from that reality, it wasn't only a latent physical threat, it was a spiritual threat too. So what couldn't infect a house? It could have been built and dedicated to idol worship. Deaths could have occurred within it and not cleansed. The builder could have assembled it and imagined it being stone, that he was building his own forever, his own holiness, divorced from that of God. He could have forgotten his place in the world. Obviously, people can place a lot of their self-worth into a house. Perhaps they think too much of themselves because of the house that they build. When the stones are replaced and the mortar is scraped, the spiritual reality of the house, in parts and superficially, is cleansed. But if the sarat is a grasping sarat, a spiritual force that is not just passive like a benign tumor, but malignant like an aggressive cancer, the entire house must be taken down and reassembled. But the goal is never to harm the homeowner. This is why they would report sarat in their own homes. No, the goal is to protect them. That's why they can take their things out of the house. You're not trying to bankrupt them and destroy them. You're giving them an opportunity for spiritual protection. The very weirdest thing for me is that the house undergoes the same final treatment as a person. A bird is slaughtered and another one is let to be free, is let free. In the case of a person, it can make sense. We are humbled as the dove represents the offering of the poor and we stood at the precipice of life and death. But now we can fly free. But a house, with the exception of the wonderful house and up, does not fly free. The house can be humbled, it can be cleansed, but it cannot fly. It can, however, draw closer to God, to the purity of the sky in which there is no death. And by drawing closer to Hashem, it can have kapara. Its core can be protected from the spiritual threats that surround it. This might all seem irrelevant today. But it is far from it. I used to eat in an Indian restaurant. It had a heksher, a, a kosher certification. It was a wonderful place. Turns out, though, before the food was being served to the Jewish customers, that it was being offered to Vishnu, the Indian god. This isn't exactly kosher. The food had a spiritually incompatible taint. Many religious Jewish women wore wigs from India. It turns out the hair had been donated to support Indian gods. It too was a vodazara, the worship of foreign gods. But the issues are not just so-called religious issues. There are deeply moral issues as well. Buying cotton t-shirts can involve forced Uyghur labor, part of China's genocidal program. Phones and electric cars use a great deal of cobalt, often mined with child slavery in the Congo. The slavery doesn't do it for you. A 1,000-pound electric car battery requires extracting and processing 500,000 pounds of material. Averaged over the battery's life, each mile of driving requires 5 pounds of material processing, and so on and so on. We do our best, but there are countless sins involved in creating anything. We do not live in a world without loss. And because of the complexity of our modern world, we are so often unaware of what is involved in the goods we use and consume. The TV show The Good Life is a pretty good taste take on one dreadfully challenging method of morally scoring our individual lives. 
In the Torah reading from Matot, we purify all the things we apply from Midian. That's another Torah reading, not this one. We purify the Devarim in fire or in water. This is where the commandment to dunk our dishes in the mikvah in order to purify them comes from. Through this, we connect our eating implements with Hashem and divorce them from any foreign values. But our living spaces have largely fallen by the wayside, and our other implements, the Devarim of modern life, have no process of purification. We can't set our cars on fire prior to driving them, or dunk our phones in a sink, or methodically deconstruct and reconstruct our electrical networks or our plumbing. We don't have any way, not even by scraping the mortar of our homes, of purifying our possessions and somehow making them a part of our divine heritage. We have no way of getting past the moral complexity in our integrated world. Seen this way, can't you imagine that the tzarat that affected our homes might actually be a gift, a way of purifying the impurity that we cannot see? In the absence of tzarat, the best we can do is to be careful in what we acquire, and then to use it in the service of Hashem. Perhaps it is like uplifting the staff of God in the fight against Amalek. We will fight, we will face spiritual losses, but if we are dedicated to Hashem, if we draw closer to Hashem, then we can be spiritually protected despite our human limitations. Shabbat Shalom. Mm-hmm.